The Arkansas Public Policy Panel is a statewide organization dedicated to achieving social and economic justice while organizing citizens groups around the state, educating and supporting them to be more effective and powerful, and linking them with one another in coalitions and networks. The panel seeks to bring balance to the public policy process in Arkansas. The Folding Chair is a podcast that is accessible and relatable to everyone to engage people around the topic of racial equity in Arkansas, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. And now, welcome to The Folding Chair, hosted by Osiris Bali. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Folded Chair Podcast, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. And I'm your host, Osiris Bali. Today, got our special guest on the Folded Chair, Coffee Davis. And as all the listeners know, the title of the show comes from the Folded Chair, quote from Shirley Chisholm. If they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. So at the table with us right now, it's Coffee Davis. How you doing? Hi, how you doing? I like that um, that concept of bringing a folding chair. Already, you know that's that's for the uh, for the for the radicals at heart. You know what I'm saying? Them rules don't apply. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Already, so um, we just gonna get into it. You know what I'm saying? I'm hit you with the seven hitter quitters. These are just some real fun questions that uh, you know what I'm saying I come up with if uh, if. If you don't want to get in too much detail, you know what I'm saying? You can be like, I'm going to just leave it at that, and then we ain't going to at you. But these are just fun questions, you know what I'm saying? And I, I always think people enjoy just hearing a little bit more about it than just the serious topics. So, um, so, my first question, seven hit of quitters. What movie can you watch over and over? Like, is there a hmm. film that you just love to watch? There's so many. Um, I definitely can watch um, The Five Heartbeats over and over, The Temptations, Friday. I mean, most of the Black um, movies from the 90s, I can watch them over and over, like Menace, Boys in the Hood, but also one to surprise you, Jurassic Park. I could watch that, like, Always. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the black the, the blurred in me. That's the um the sci-fi. I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Yo, that's funny. I just watched for the first time ever. I just watched not Jurassic Park, but I guess Jurassic Park two. I don't know what the second part called. It's because I never seen any of the Jurassic Parks until recently. I just saw that for the first time. It's the second part, so I still ain't seen the first anyway. So. Well, the thing is, I read the book when I was young, and so just to see it in film, and you know, back then, that um, that was like the birth of the CGI and all that kind of, uh, I guess that's what that's called. Um, it was just amazing to me to actually see them look like real dinosaurs and stuff, so. Oh, uh, you talking about like the, uh, the, uh, the dinosaurs. Yeah, the graphics and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, the blurry side of you. All right. So we're going to take it back a little bit on this one, too, then. Uh, when you were in school, you know, at any grade level, you know what I'm saying, what subject did you find it the hardest to, like, keep up with or was you just the least interested in? Oh, that's super easy. That would be math. <laughs> um, <laughs> obviously, I don't use that side of my brain as often as my creative side. So 
having to be um, to to deal with facts and figures and trying to um, you know not be able to um, to actually analyze some information and come with my own thoughts is difficult for me. It's, it's either right or wrong, and that's just like it was just difficult for me to grasp. Ditto, ditto. I'm the same way. I knew I was done with math when I heard the phrase. A negative plus a negative equal a positive. Equals a positive, right. I was like, <laughs> make this make sense to me. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm done. I'll never use this in life. I'm just done. Right. I hated it. I hated it in, in elementary. I hated it in um, junior high, high school. I hated it in college. Already. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you was going to say that, but I had to just double check. Um, okay, so the third question. Tell me what you think when you hear this phrase. Vote blue no matter who. Vote blue no matter who. I think of the Democrats that it doesn't matter who they are. That as black people, we should just vote for the Democrats. Never mind that um, Biden was the one that wrote the the um, the crime bill that Bill Clinton wind up um, putting into action. And those were Democrats, even though they, in my opinion, were fiscally um, Republicans, and they caused us a lot of harm as the black community were always pushed toward voting blue. So that's what I think of. Got you. Dropping those jewels. We need that. Right. <laughs> so the fourth question. Tell me something that is a part of your daily routine or ritual that you don't mind sharing. Hmm. Part of my daily routine or ritual. <laughs> Check your Facebook. <laughs> Um, lately, lately I started, um, meditating and I do a to-do list and actually I've been doing a to-do list since I was, since probably like 2004, when I first started doing the play freedom, when I became involved with that, um, just being able to, you know, being a creative, you know, we're all over the place a lot of times and just being able to kind of mentally plan my day out and have my to-do list for checks and balances so I can make sure I accomplish everything that I'm, that I set out to do. And I do it daily and weekly and monthly. So I try to set intentions weekly and then daily I go back to it and I add to my, you know, to my to-do list. So it could be something as simple as focus this week, um, don't procrastinate or something as specific as um, pay the light bill, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Cool, cool, already. All right, fifth question. Um, Obviously, well, to me, it's a no-brainer. I think Halloween is canceled this year. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of like everybody's time of year when people like to go dress up and go eat candy and, you know, just do little fun stuff, ch children and adults. But still, you know what I'm saying, with it being this month, um, tell me, like, do you have a favorite Halloween costume? Or if you were thinking about your ultimate Halloween costume, what would that be? My uh, my favorite Halloween costume has to be the costume I wear every year. <laughs> you know, given the chance, given the opportunity, I'm gonna bust out my vampire outfit. My profile picture been a vampire picture since the beginning of creation of Facebook. <laughs> so um, I don't know what the fascination is, but like last year I went to some, some masquerade and I still had my little vampire outfit together. And um, I don't know. I just always want to throw, I guess it's sexy and dark at the same time. So, and um, All right. I mean, if, I if I was celebrating Halloween, I guess that's what I would, I would probably throw on. All right. Welcome to the dark side. All right. <laughs> okay. Sixth question. Uh, 
tell me about a characteristic that you have that most people don't know that side of you unless they're like really close to you. Um, I think that I come across as hard. Um, I mean, everywhere from my job to just regular people, you know, they assume my personality is kind of hardcore, kind of. Um, I, I'm pretty blunt. I say what I mean stuff like that, but I think that they'd be surprised at how really soft on the inside I really am. I'm, I'm a Pop-Tart. I'm hard on the outside, I'm soft on the inside, so. Pop-Tart, okay. I like I like affection, I like, you know, I don't, you know, my, my inner circle knows the really soft, vulnerable side of me. Gotcha, all right. All right, we're gonna keep it going. The last question out of the seven hit of quitters. All right, so you might have to do a little reminiscing on this, so you might not have to. Um, okay. This one right here. Can you tell me about a time when you just really thought that you was just the coolest, but then eventually you found out that you kind of like the butt of the joke or that it was something about you that made everybody kind of like laughing and that would just totally went off your whole plan. And you think about a time like that. Um, shoot, I probably have so many because I always think I'm the coolest. And I'm always, <laughs> I'm always shown that I'm not, you know, aside from when you have kids, you know, my kids are always showing me that, um, well, when, especially when they were younger, that I wasn't, you know, that the 90s lingo ain't cool no more. But, um, <laughs> but uh, another, um, I guess some of my, my funnest times would have been when I was doing the play Freedom and I was directing. And of course, I had never directed before. And most of the people involved had never acted before. So we were all kind of like, you know, trying our hand at, at this new craft. But um, I remember one time I was on the stage and I was trying to show the dancers, we were just gonna call them dancers. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> they were on the stage and there was a, um, I don't know how to politically correctly say a pole, but there was a pole. And so I was trying to it was, show, it was, like a, it was like a Chicago style routine we were doing, you probably remember. And so I'm saying that for people who never saw the play. Um, and so I was showing the dancers how to go around the pole and, you know, be real sexy and slide around the pole. And I'm trying to, you know, show my sexy side. And then as I was sliding around the pole, my head hit the pole. And we were in the auditorium. <laughs> we were in the auditorium. So it made a loud, I mean, it reverberated off the walls. And so, you know, everybody got quiet at first. And then next thing I know, my brother just bust out laughing and starts running out the auditorium, everybody else just erupts. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's classic right there, you know, and you know, you know your people care about you, you know, when you do something like that, because uh, we always gonna make sure that you are okay first. Right, right, that's what, that's what the silence was about. It was like, oh. Yeah. Oh, man. Yo, and then once we found out you're good, it's, it's, let's get these like, phone you know what i'm saying let's chuckle it up you know <laughs> right i mean i just I, I couldn't do anything but just lay out and just laugh myself <laughs> <laughs> oh really man that's what's up okay man so we're gonna get into the meat of the, of the interview right now uh coffee i know you pretty well we didn't collaborated a bunch on various artistic projects but for all the people that listen to the folded chair uh can you just give us an introduction about who you are and what you do, and uh, we'll get right into it. Okay. Well, um, I'm, I'm Coffee Davis. I am a writer first. I write, I love to write all different kind of things and try my hand on all different kind of things, mostly creative writing. 
So I'm a poet. I do spoken word poetry. And I have done some in print. Um, I have actually two books of poetry. And um, I'm an author. So I have two books published. Um, one of them is a memoir. And the other one was a book based on my stage play, Freedom. So obviously, I'm also a playwright. I've tried my hand at screenwriting. Actually, I'll say I did more than try my hand at it because I did have, um, I did release a film locally called Loyalty. I think that was in 2013. Um, I also, I'm a speaker and I go out to different, different um, events or venues and speak uh, mostly to young women and girls. Um, either I speak on trauma. I've also spoken to a lot of um, educators on educating um, the disenfranchised or, you know, the stories from the margin, stuff like that. So um, I think that sums it up. I'm a fitness guru now. That's my latest. <laughs> I'm trying to get into the fitness arena. I just try to do things, you know, that I'm passionate about. And that's, that's one of those things. Already. That's what's up. And uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, saying you got uh, your hand in several different things. Uh, tell us the name of, of your, your published works that you released too. So, cause we got people that are, that love to go on Google, search you up in our support. So tell us the name of those uh, published works. Okay. There. I think my most notable one is Medusa. It's, it's a memoir. It's called Medusa Reflections of an Angry Black Girl. It's available on Amazon. Also, um, I can be inboxed on Facebook under Coffee Davis or IG and I can get you an autographed copy. It's also in Mosaic Templars. Um, I also have a poetry version of that called Medusa Reflections in Poetry, which is also available on all those sites. And I have a poetry book called um, Ghetto Politics, which is um, uh, available on all those sites as well. And it's a book of um, most of my poetry from the mid 2000s, I guess up until present. And uh, that's it. They're also on, I have reviews on Goodreads. I have a Facebook page that's called Medusa Memoir. So you can reach me on any of those sites. And also, uh, well, my, my memoir, Medusa, Reflections of an Angry Black Girl, also won a few awards. So I won the, uh, the Arkansas Arts Council Fellowship Award and also the Nan Snow um, Emerging Writers Award. Those are the, just the ones I could think of off the top of my head. Got you. Okay, so let's touch on Medusa for, uh, you know, saying for the beginning of this. Uh, tell me about uh, how Medusa came about the, your book and, you know, what inspired it and, you know, how, how was that process? Because that, is that your first book that you published? That's actually my second book, but it's the most known. The first one was, was an accompaniment to the play that I was doing. It was called Freedom. I didn't really push that um, like I did Medusa. So Medusa is like my first known, really known um, work that's been published. And I did self-publish it. And um, it basically, it began as a poem. I was um, actually, and many people don't know this, I actually wrote the poem Medusa. It was going to be, uh, I think, a four or five piece poem. And I was hoping to do it with about four or five other women. So it was supposed to be, Medusa was supposed to embody all of um, the, the different aspects of black womanhood. So as it, as it boiled down, um, I wind up just pushing it all into one poem, basing it on my own life and doing it as a poem. And so I would do it here locally. And sometimes, you know, regionally, whenever we would travel or anything like that. And, um, and it just became one of my um, signature pieces. I probably my, my signature piece 
and um and eventually i just decided to you know expand on it and just put it into a memoir i had been working on other stuff but i kind of put that stuff on the back burner and i decided to kind of introduce myself with medusa the memoir and after that just let all my other work follow that gotcha already so um i'm gonna ask you this because i read medusa and it was a great book to give a lot of a lot of insight um in the story about basically what it was like for a young girl growing up in uh in uh cali in uh oakland so mm -hmm. when did you realize that you had a gift with words and uh tell me about some of your your influences as a writer okay um honestly a lot of my work is in retrospect because it was a long time before i realized that I was a writer and I think when you're going when you're in survival mode it's kind of hard to just like hone in to a lot of those gifts so uh, my first clue I guess you could say happened when I was in high school when one of my friends took a poem of mine and turned it into the school newspaper and it was published in there and my principal at the time you know he kind of gave me some um, some feedback on it and then even you know I was always an avid reader so um, I, you know I was just reading a lot eventually when I moved to Arkansas I started writing about a lot of those experiences that I had in California. And at the same time, I was also in college and I would turn in papers, you know how you have like lit papers or philosophy papers. And I would always get feedback from the teachers, like, oh my God, this is like, you really write really well. And, um, uh, you know, I even had teachers like, you know, a couple of teachers stand up and read my, my, um, my paper back. And, and one of the times that's real notable to me is that the teacher didn't even realize I was um, a black female. And I think it was a little bit disappointing when she realized that for whatever <laughs> reason. But um, it just started sparking in me that not only did I like to write and I started enjoying it and, and finally having the headspace to actually be able to put my thoughts down, but also that, I, um, that people actually embraced it. And I, I think I fully stepped into it when I started going to the, po the uh, poetry scene which my first, um, my first step on the poetry scene was at a place called Tang's in West Little Rock. And that was the first time when I really stood in the arena with like real poets. And I was like, okay, wow, I, like I could fit into this. Like, you know, I, did, I had nothing to measure my, you know, my work by at least, on, you know, it's like playing street ball when you've been, you know, I've been in academics doing academic writing, but being able to play in your own area in your own culture and having people respect you was really big for me. Ready, and so uh, so you know, growing up and realizing that you had that gift for words, um, you know, I said just by people like you know acknowledging, admiring your work as a student, and then growing into your own as a, a writer and a poet on a poetry scene. Like, what are who are some of your influences? Like, you know, you say you were always an avid reader. What were some of the people that you were reading, and who are some of the people that you read now or listen to? You know. Okay. Um, yes, definitely an avid reader still. Um, so I'll say some of my earliest reading was like Terry McMillan. She kind of gave me a, a love for story. Um, into Saki Shange, the dialogue and the choreo poems and just being able to like really capture the, the culture and the essence of the way people speak. Um, Donald Goins, um, Iceberg Slim, I was reading Ghetto Lord. It just gave me an appreciation for, you know, just being brutally honest, having, you know, taking control of your voice, not letting people tell you what you can and can't write. 
uh, Nathan McCall, Ralph Ellison. He, he kind of reminds me of um, Jordan Peele because, you know, they both do like frame stories where it's a whole lot of symbolism and stuff like that. And then um, when I got to college, British literature, um, Chaucer, Shakespeare, stuff like that. I mean, of course, listening to hip hop music, you're already going to get iambic pentameter and all that kind of rhythm and flow naturally. So I, I, so I credit a lot of um, a lot of people like Slick Rick, Tupac, Nas with storytelling and giving me the ability to do what I noticed in some of my British literature classes, un, you know, unstudied. So I guess those would be my influences. Yeah. Oh, um, current, current. Let me say my current one. Um, Yaa Giasi, I don't know if I'm saying her name right. I think she's going to be like one of my new favorite ones. She's, she wrote um, Homecoming and also Transcendent Kingdom that just came out. Yaa spelled Y-A-A and Giasi, G-Y-A-S-I. Beautiful, beautiful story. I mean, definitely, um, if you haven't read, it's definitely something worth, worth reading. Got you. I always find some good good reads when I talk to my peoples on uh on this podcast. Um and I, I like the fact that you mentioned, you know what I'm saying, you you, uh, you were just an avid reader growing up. I think it's a lot of times in the black community we uh they always stress to us about our literacy scores and the importance of literacy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of times, you know, uh, growing up and when we're in elementary school, we get a lot of we get a lot of material that we uh to read as far as like history and literature that we really don't ever really relate to sometimes. And, and, and then some right. of that stuff doesn't interest us. But if you put a book in front of us or, or a magazine in front of us that's actually talking about the things that we're interested in, man, we will sit there and read that. We'll embrace it. Yeah. There, there's, there's beauty in representation. And I just talked to a group of teachers about that in, um, in a um, presentation I just did recently. Uh-huh. You know, my life is a tale of two different readers because I listed all the things I chose to read, except for the British lit. Um, but that's not including all the things I was forced to read that I really, you know, I basically had to become two different type of readers. I had to read mm-hmm. for school and then I read for home. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just turn away from it because they don't see themselves in it. You reading Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, Moby Dick, it's just not, it's not appealing, you know. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely feel you on that, man. You know what I'm saying? Like you said, representation matters. I think that's a phrase that has been almost on uh, on my mind like throughout the whole year and over the last couple of years, man. You know what I'm saying? To have that representation, for that, that relatability to be there for, for mm-hmm. students, it's, a, it's very important. And if you, and uh, I'm, I'm gonna move on, but it's, I think about it, you mentioned hip hop, you know, uh, I am the big, I am big pentameter. Uh, Slick Rick, Tupac, Nas. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you were noticing the culture of hip hop, man. Literacy is is really a big part of the, of the culture, man. You know what I'm saying? Because it's from the beginning to the essence of from the essence of hip hop. You talking about the magazines that we had people, you know, mm-hmm. pictures from the magazine and posting them on walls to like moving forward. People like. Uh, reading the lyrics and reading the producer's album cover art and you know the back right. of the, yeah it's, it's a, I mean I still remember the lyrics from like probably like sixth grade I can still recite lyrics from yeah. from hip-hop artists yeah yeah and then even even now you know so moving forward with the internet age man 
I, and you know, you can you hear people tell stories about how they printed out lyrics on websites so they could learn. Mm -hmm. oh, My son and, used to do that. Daniel used yeah. to do that with Kendrick Lamar, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, they, and they, even now, like with the language of, of how they uh, how things are spelled now, you know, they, it's like a, a whole different language. Not a whole different language, but it's a whole uh, different. It really is like a dialect, like a different. Yeah, it's, it's like you see the word kind of spelled out a little bit, but you got to actually think about what it's what is uh sounds like. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like it's an artist called Black, but he uses six. I know. I, I always forget how to say his name. I'm like, Slack? So this is Slack? He's, he's a dope artist, though. Yeah, but he used that six as a, like, kind of like a lowercase b, so you got to pay attention. So, you know, literacy is a part of it, man. We just got to, uh, we we have to be able to relate and, you know what I'm saying, there's some mm -hmm. dynamics to it all. But that's that's dope that you mentioned that. Um, so, um, my next question, you know what I'm saying, and, and you mentioned about, like, you know, uh, your your memoir producer receiving like awards and um i know that like did, I, I don't know when you got to the world i think you said you got it like maybe uh when we talked before you said you got it like a couple years ago mm -hmm. okay and so like right now you know everything is like there's a heightened interest in just black art in general you know what i'm saying in diversity and, and talking about representation and inclusion so you know, we in this moment where there's high high interest in all of the, of the black art and art forms, and it's in particular from like white audiences. So, uh, how do you feel about that? And do you think that that has an impact on your work as an artist? Well, I think I kind of feel like it's always been that way. You know, during like the Black Arts Movement or the Harlem Renaissance, where um, all of a sudden there was this huge interest in black art. But I think what's different about those particular movements and just regular everyday life is that those are just the times when white America pays attention to the black artists that are actually creating versus like um, just being interested in our stories if it comes in the form of say Uncle Tom's Cabin or um, uh, what's some other ones? I know that was Harriet Beecher Stowe. Just mm -hmm. black stories, like the help, stories that are told about the black experience from an, a white author versus stories that are told about the black experience from a black creative. So that's the, the difference I see now. And it, in my opinion, it compares to the Harlem Renaissance when you have uh, Zora Neale and um, Langston Hughes and all them creating their own art and bringing people into their spaces to appreciate their art as they do it versus us having to be like, okay, recognize us or, or you're only comfortable with taking us when we are, you know, when we fit into your um, your stereotypes of what you want to see with black art. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, slave narratives or what I like to call black agony noir, which is like black pain or the, um, you know, the white savior complex. Mm -hmm. Those type of stories are um, right now are taking a back seat to us telling our own stories, which sometimes is just regular black life, black people in love without violence. Mm -hmm. um, and so now, you know, we're seeing, I guess, in cinema, especially the black experience becoming profitable, coming from the black voice, which um, I guess is similar to what's been going on in a rap game. I mean, when, mm -hmm. when you listen to a rapper, you're going to get that black experience from that black voice to, since like NWA day, since Ice-T Ice was like six in the morning, you're going to get that black experience. And they were paying for that back then with rap music. They were mm -hmm. going to concerts and they were like, like 70, 80% white because 
we couldn't afford those tickets back then. Mm-hmm. So um, I just think cinema is starting to take along, take those, um, take that turn. So maybe have people like Ryan Coogler, who's who's a black creative, black director, and he has a black cast, and it's you know he has creative control over his vision, and it's empowering for black people. Um, it shows a you know a, a different side of us because when we tell our stories, we're going to tell a whole picture. Yeah, there's pain sometimes. Yeah, there's um, sometimes there's um, um, disenfranchisement. Sometimes though, it's just straight up love. Sometimes it's two parent households. Um, as far as my art, I think that I've always um, I always wanted to just be true and be authentic to myself. Um, I don't want to tap dance or shuck and jive. And I think one of the one of the blessings for me was that I was a poet. So with poetry, you know, that's just that's just what they call real rap raw. You're gonna get it straight out the poet's mouth. I'm not creating something that's fiction. So um, I just kind of took that into my own writing, and um, I just wanted to be able to tell my story authentically without even considering the audience, whether it's the black audience or because you know sometimes even us we don't know what we want to hear you know, until you give it to them, give them something that maybe they hadn't heard before or a different perspective, then it's embraced. And then with the, um, in terms of other audiences outside of uh, Black people, I just wanted to stay authentic. I didn't want to worry about hurting feelings or making people, you know, uncomfortable. I just wanted to tell my story. At the end of the day, if people buy it and embrace it, great. If they don't, then I'll know that I did what I wanted to do and what I, what I intended on doing, which is telling my story. Got you, got you. And man, it's just, uh, it's so much I could say about a lot of the things that you were just mentioning right then. Um, but you know what I'm saying? I, I'm going I'm to hold back because, man, I, I'm trying not to uh, just go on and on and on. But I mean, it's, 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 it's very important, a lot of the things that you mentioned, man, uh, about us having, uh, having control over the narrative of our stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like you mentioned with, with hip hop, man, you know, that is, uh, that's just us just raw, just really explaining our feelings and our emotions. But at the same time, you're talking about the, uh, just the overall picture and not just all of the pain, you know what I'm saying? I, I tell people all the time, but like, that's why Pac was like one of my biggest, uh, inspirations as an artist, not because I just like, man, I, every album of his just was what I was oh, lyrically just crazy. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, just the lyrics were just out there. It was just the diversity and the different sides that he showed to himself. He could do the kick in it. He could be an activist. He could be a thug, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? He could be a ladies man. A I mean. ladies man, all of that. <laughs> Cause I used to be, I mean, you know, like I tell people all the time, you can come up to the, the grimiest, most, my, like just straight up thug gangster individual. And you know what I'm saying? It's like you was talking about people look at you like you hard, but you got a soft side. Man, right. that dude is not going to wake up and tell his mama he love him or, you know what I'm saying, you know, they daughter or they child hit him up and they got a little softer side. There's so many different sides to individuals and our art needs to be able to uh, show that. So, I think that's the biggest problem I have with the way we, we've been represented is that it's like one-dimensional type people, you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. even even our own creators do that. You know, we're not one-dimensional people. We are. We have so many different sides. Most definitely, and I, I hope somebody listening that's that's like casting directors 
and over fashion and stuff like that in the Hollywood industry. Cause I get tired of like looking at these movies and these guys get these roles. It's like supposed to be tough guys. And it's, mm-hmm. all got, it's like, they all got like some type of wardrobe, uh, <laughs> some infinite wardrobe closet that they all go to and go the same outfit. I go to my tank top, a do-rag. <laughs> one roll wig. And, and one cross necklace or money sign necklace. I'm like, oh, that's, what, that's, what, that's how thugs dress. Okay, that's how I got <laughs> I'm like, man, come on, man. But uh, I'm like, yo, we need, we definitely need some representation when it comes to like uh, styling different people in the entertainment industry for these different roles. I mean, right. uh, I could just go on and on, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but I think people get the point. And so, uh, you know, we kind of just following with the flow of what we've been talking about, you know, so you mentioned you were a spoken word artist, poet, author, playwright, screenwriter, and you know what I'm saying, you was doing, a, you was acting and you did a little dancing that, that didn't go so <laughs> That was my ministry. That was <laughs> not my ministry. That ain't your ministry. You know, sometimes you got to, got to stay where your lane is, you know what I'm saying? Right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, a lot of your work you draw, you, you draw it from like past experience and your thoughts and your views. Would you say that, like, you know what I'm saying, your creative works, is that, like, some uh, a form of therapy for you? Absolutely. I just think it um, it's indicative of things that, you know, things that you've gone through, pain, stuff like that, and just being able to get it out and get it out onto paper. And, you know, one of the things I realized about myself is that it's easier for me to write than it is for me to even speak. So I can say things and put it down on paper and that I, you know, things that I would probably feel uncomfortable talking about, I can actually like put it in my art. And I mean, I can shout it out from the mountaintops in my art, you know what I'm saying? So I I think that it's a way for me to get out what I feel. And everybody Mm -hmm. has their things. I mean, some people do it through dance. Some people do it through, um, you know, working with young people, whatever, whatever their thing is, mine just happens to be writing and just being able to, um, to purge it. And also at the same time, feel like I'm um, a lighthouse helping other people find their way. And everybody wants to feel like, you know, their life has a purpose and their struggles have, have you know, have a purpose. And so mm-hmm. that's what my writing gives to me. It gives me a purpose. Yeah, okay. And I definitely, I definitely can relate to you on that. Uh, <clears throat> I'm gonna just ask you this question too. Um, is, is that something that like, you like uh, first experienced that like when you were younger, like as far as like journaling or having like a diary or just just kind of like just writing your thoughts and expressing yourself down when you were like younger as a child? Yeah, you know, I did. I Actually, you just reminded me that I did actually, um, I guess you could say my first writing experiences were journaling. I used to journal things. Most of the time it was about boys I liked and stuff like that, you know. But um, I also used to write you know, different, like the, the poem that my friend wind up putting in the newspaper, it was just, I was just feeling down and I just kind of wrote how I was feeling out. And, you know, a lot of times when you're going through depression or stress as a youngster, especially, you're not familiar with those, with those feelings. You don't even know you're going through it. You don't even know you're stressed out, mm-hmm. you know? And so just being able to write it down, I can tell looking back at some of those things, like, wow, I was really stressed. And um, so, yeah, I think that back then, it was a way for me to kind of, especially when you feel like you don't have a voice, you know, mm. you don't, you know, nobody's really listening to what you're saying. Nobody, I mean, even the things that you're not saying, I mean, you come to school, for, like for me, I was coming to school two or three periods late. 
furious meaning school furious <laughs> um, um, <laughs> let me clarify but um you know and just you know sometimes my appearance could look gloomy and i just think that um we say a lot of things with our body language as kids and with our you know with our behavior that wasn't being heard um of course you know we're quieted a lot of times in school you can't talk you know, counselors may be overworked, so they're not really talking with you. With classmates, everything's a joke. And with, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times at home with parents, it's like, you just, you got to be quiet. They got their own problems. And, you know, they're not even in a position mentally to be able to assist you. So I just think that I just didn't have a voice at the time. And I just found it through through writing. Word, word. I mean, I always, you know, being a youth advocate and, and uh, just working with the youth over the years, I always, like, just, it never surprised me that, like, a lot of times when you go ask the youth how they feeling and what they feel like, that, you know, saying sometimes you would give responses to how they were feeling through, like, letters. They would write you a letter for mm -hmm. you some, or, you know what I'm saying, uh, or they would uh, express it even, like, you know, um, in the studio, we, you know, we had a studio, mm -hmm. youth programs I worked at, and they would just get to talking about their experiences, what they were going through in a song, and just write. Some students, some students will draw something, you know, and you'll see something yeah. like, like, dang, you drawing somebody getting stabbed? You know, it's just, yeah. you especially just have to pay attention. Yeah. yeah. Especially young children. So, I mean, that, that art is a big part of why I say, like, when we talk about working with, you know, younger people, whatever, just always including the arts because that kind of like brings uh, different people to the table who normally might not even want to express how they truly feel. Like the arts kind of like help them open up and express how they feel in inside. And then, right, I, I created a, I'm sorry, go ahead. Nah, nah uh, I was just saying like, I, I just get amazed every year about <clears throat> how many different youth I meet that are like actually poets and they, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 11, 12, I'm like, man, I was never thinking about writing poetry and sharing it at that age, you know? Me either. Well, I created, a, um, at my job, you know, I see youth that are 16 to 24, who most of them have dropped out of school. And I started mm -hmm. a, um, um, a poetry group up here called the Lost Poets. Mm -hmm. And they came up with that name, by the way. And, um, and it just amazed me how many people started coming and some of the things that they would say. And, and a lot of them had never wrote poetry, but some of the things that they've been through would just floor me. But just, and the ability for them to stand up in a room full of their peers and finally be able to say this stuff. I mean, mm. I think the first day that we, that we had a session, everybody was crying. Yeah, I already know. I can already imagine it. Did you, did you tell them about the last poets when you, they came up with the name, The Lost Poets? Yeah, but actually it, it, it didn't even come from that, which is crazy. It came from one of the students wrote a poem called The Lost Boy. Oh. And, and um, it was just so, it was just like a masterpiece. And we all was like, just, you know, just all into it and everything. And so when the name came up, um, ideas were kind of thrown around and everybody liked that Lost Boy. So everybody was like, Lost Poets. And so, yeah, we had that discussion around that time about The Last Poets. Already, that's what's up, man. I look forward to hopefully one day hearing some of those poets for real. Um, so you know, what I'm saying, uh, just talking to you, man. Uh, you know, very talented writer, man. One of the one of the best writers I personally ever met. Um, but you know, what I'm saying, uh, 
when I think about your poetry a lot of time, I think, you know, let's, let me go back just a little bit. You know, you talked about your first experience, like on the poetry scene was at this place called Tang. And uh, Tang's, I'm sorry. And then, uh, you know, you talked about being in a room of other poets and it being like your first time, like really uh, sharing your poetry on that level. And people are always like, every time they talk about open mics, it never fails, man. Somebody always mentioned, like, I want to go to open mic. It's like a Love Jones type of deal. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I know you love that movie. The soundtrack is amazing. You know, Lorenz Tate did his thing. Shout out to Malik Yusuf for coaching him. But, um, you know, <laughs> I, I have never really been to a poetry scene that was like Love Jones. Like, I've never been to an open mic that was similar. You know, maybe I got to go to Chicago and check it out or something like that. But, you're like I, I know people sometimes probably might think that like they meet you and they say they hear you a poet and they might think that like your poetry might be like this lovey dovey like romance and right gonna be the main topic or whatever. But you out but you got like a real raw, very in, real raw like perspective and very intelligent way of articulating and like your your imagination and the way that you like put your words and thoughts together, man. Is like you know, is is I think everybody will agree that it's very dope, but I don't think people will just look at you and just be like, "Man, she wrote that!" Like you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It just you just you got a picture in your mind sometimes of what these people look like based on their words. And uh, so, what, so what I look like based on my words? I don't know. Like I just told you, I, <laughs> if I had to just judge you off top, they'd be like, "Oh, her name Coffee. She a poet? Ah, uh, man, her, all her poetry finna be about is uh." Uh, this romantic love and what she what 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 kind of relationship she ideal man <laughs> yeah the sexy the sexiness or you know what I'm saying just I would expect no type of social commentary I I just keep playing with you you know what I'm saying <laughs> that's just me judging the book by its cover and I admit that I I do that sometimes but with you you got a whole different it's a whole different approach like you really would get blown away and so like well, thank you. <laughs> nah, thank you for, you know what I'm saying, proving me wrong. <laughs> but, uh, so I want to ask you, like, what unique issues do black women as artists face in society where we always see that, like, race and gender, like, is playing a role? Like, what issues? Um, as an artist? As black um, women who are artists, yeah. Okay. Well, of course, you know, we're at this intersection that a lot of times is not really acknowledged. Um, and we are very very much so um, loyal to our community, sometimes to a fault, because I think that, especially back in the day, uh, back in like the 80s and 90s, a lot of times our own thoughts and feelings were put on the back burner because as a community, we had to you know, think about the whole community as opposed to things that are specifically, um, that specifically are geared toward women, because a lot of times those things didn't want to be, those things weren't, well received so you know the unique things that we may deal with like sexuality sexual abuse that type of stuff was kind of like not talked about and sometimes to our peril because it's run rampant in our community but we don't we don't talk about those things um but also in terms of just being um of, of course there are a lot of things that parallel race the same things that a black man or or just a man period would deal or a, a black man would deal with um, in terms of getting their art 
um, represented, being able to, for their voice to be represented. We deal with it as a black person, but also as a woman as well. Um, you wonder like, will I be portrayed right? How will I be portrayed? Um, before the women's, um, um, not the feminist movement, but the women's, um, oh God, I'm trying to think Come of that. Women's suffrage? Not women's suffrage, but the one that um, like artists like um, Alice Walker and um, the women's movement where they were like specifically saying, okay, we appreciate artists like Ralph Ellison. We appreciate all our brothers, but we want to be able to tell our story and our voices because they didn't like the way that they were represented in some of those books either. So mm -hmm. being able to come out with something like The Color Purple that, you know, has its benefits and also, you know, it does have some negative images in it also. You know, I can see why some some black men may be, you know, during this era may be um, taken aback by it. But just to have that moment where women feel like, okay, well, I'm tired of being, you know, these specific images of, of that are portrayed. You know, when you read books like, um, of course, Donald Goins' Iceberg Slim. I mean, the portrayal of the woman was, I mean, you're gonna be one of four or five things, you know, um, and not all of them were sexual. Some of them was like you're an enabler. And that, you know, that's even um, um, evident in Ralph Ellison's work um, and different people, you know, just being able to portray a woman from a woman's perspective. Um, and then having that, that work actually embraced. And then also mm -hmm. as an artist, will I be respected? You know, if I'm a woman and I'm a rapper and I step into this arena, am I going to be respected? Are you going to want to hear my voice? And I'm even, you know, I'm even more partial to deeper voices. You know, I don't know if it's a vibrational thing or whatever, but if, for me to hear a woman rapping, you know, a lot of times it had to be like the MC Light who embodied like maleism, you know, her voice, her, her body language, her clothes. And even when, you know, when women, you know, when the, women, when the woman rapper evolved into like a, I'm not even going to say evolved, like there was something wrong with MC Light, but she's like one of my favorites but when it transitioned to being like little kim and foxy brown i still kind of was more partial to the raspy voices you know um just you know if i'm a female rapper and i step into this arena will you respect me will you even listen to my album um if i'm a female writer you know and i ran across this with uh, with medusa because it's called medusa reflections of an angry black girl are men gonna pick it up because the story is not written just for women and it's not a male bashing book. It's just telling, honestly telling my experiences. And the name Reflections of an Angry Black Girl was just a play on, you know, one of the stereotypes, angry black woman. But I wasn't a woman yet. So, um, it, but it, it does not in any kind of way say this is for women only. But a lot of times books that represent women or have a woman on the cover or has a, is a woman's story, a lot of times, you know, men may shy away from that um, for whatever reasons. Um, so also, will you know, not only will I have, you know, the support of, of everyone, will I have an audience, a universal audience, and then, um, can I tell my own story? So how will I be received? And I think I, I had that even as a spoken word artist, you know, when I initially came out on the poetry scene, you know, and a lot of guys were like, man, that was dope, man, that was good, you know. I wanted to know what, what do the sisters think? You know, do they think it's good? You know, do they like it? I think a lot of people were put off, you know, by how I looked at first. Like, she don't look like a poet. You know what I'm saying? So, are, you know, are you going to embrace me? And like, like we said, you know, that as people, we're very complex 
you know, but also as a woman, I'm very complex. I can, you know, look sexy in my own right, look cute or whatever, look girly and still step up on the stage and talk, you know, politics or talk, you know, about the black experience and still be, you know, respected. But I think that, um, you know, and I think it has to do with, you know, the, the patriarchal, you know, society that we're living in, that I think that a woman's voice just did not have the significance for a long time. And I'm um, just trying to like get other people. And I, and I will say this, you know, that I'm not trying to come down on brothers because brothers have been a really big support of my book and everything. And I just wanted it to be that. I wanted it to be a bridge. I wanted them to be like, okay, I love minister society and I love, um, um, uh, what's another one? Boys in the Hood. I'm just trying to think of like black stories um, or book, you know, the, the memoir book that was written by um, M.K. Asante or the mm -hmm. cook-up that was written by, um, oh, I forgot his name. I know you talk about the brother from uh, Baltimore. From Baltimore, yeah. Yeah. Um, Watkins, D. Watkins, I think that's D. Watkins, uh, D. Watkins, yep. Watkins. Okay. I, I love those stories. Matter of fact, they were, those two stories were great inspiration for Medusa. However, I wanted to, I wanted Medusa to parallel that story. Like, okay, you was dealing with this, my brother, you were dealing with this in the home, in the same environments. And this is what I was dealing with at home in those same environments with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, these are both mirrors. These are both, this is, this is the, you know, the yin and the yang. This is the male version. This is the female version of the same story. So that's what I wanted it to be. I just felt like the female story wasn't always out there. So hopefully, just like I sat down and read um, Buck and, um, and the cook-up, hopefully, you know, everyone would embrace this and read it with that same understanding that, wow, this is what my sister's going through. You know what I'm saying? And, and honestly, a lot of them experiences wasn't just for sisters, because I've had guys come up to me and tell me, like, some things that they've gone through that's similar. And, you know, I just feel like, you know, it's just, you know, it should be something that bridges us, not, not, you know, not rips us apart, but bridges us together because we do have a lot of common stories. And some of the stories, you know, men may not even know that, wow, this is what it feels like. And that's why I wrote it in um, first person present, if you notice that. Like, I didn't tell it like it was something happening in the past. I told it like, I walk into the room, you know, first person present, because I wanted that reader, particularly um, someone who has not had that experience, I wanted them to feel like they're having that experience. No doubt. Yeah, no, uh, definitely reading the book, man. I definitely like how you, um, how you talked in first person, because in the book, you know what I'm saying, you find yourself like, like rooting for the for the main character in the book. You know what I'm saying? For rooting for you because you know what I'm saying you got all of these things going on, but it's all relatable because it's like so many different situations with, uh, with you trying to find your way, and then the different the different guys that come into the story that are around the same age as you. You know, uh, me personally, like I, I just really like the connection that you have with your character in your book, Sunjata. Because he, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, he seemed like you, but at the same time, you know, he was always seemed like the guy that was looking out for you and, you know what I'm saying, just not, uh, just not going to sit there and let you just, you know what I'm saying, 
struggle on your own if he could help, if, if he could help it, you know what I'm saying? And so um, I, I enjoyed the book and, you know what I'm saying, just the different experiences and circumstances because, you you know, you did a good job of, like, painting the picture of what everybody was going through, male or female, in the story. It was just like a, a – it was an experience where, you know what I'm saying, we're talking in first person, but my first thing I think about is this sounds like a movie, the way I'm reading it and what I'm envisioning in my imagination, so. Oh, thank you. Already. So, uh, and then you, and you know, throughout this conversation we have, you've mentioned, um, well, I've mentioned how I've, how I've like perceived you the first time I met you. And then what, you know, you talk about the characteristics you have, like the, the softer side to yourself that people don't know unless they get close to you sometimes. Um, I feel like there's a, uh, there's a, a broken narrative about black women in society. And as far as like, Black being women being um, considered aggressive or hard, or even um, the expectation that black women will save us. Like you start hearing like people, uh, say, you, I start seeing people say that online. Like black women gonna do this for us. Black women gonna save us. Mm -hmm. And I started noticing in my mind this uh, in our society this dependency on black women to be the strongest out of uh, all of us. You know what I'm saying? We expect a black woman to do this for us. When it comes to politics, black women are, you know what I'm saying, are expected to take the lead and, um, you know, do the voter registration, do the mass registrations and do the census and, you know what I'm saying, and step into politics and all that type of stuff and just be strong no matter what. Uh, what do you feel about that? Like, is there a broken narrative where we have to, like, stop putting those unrealistic expectations on all black women and that they shouldn't have the burden of, you know, saying always having to be the strongest and just having to push through? Um, I don't know where that, I, I mean, I do agree that that is, that has been the narrative in past um, generations. I, it is slowly, slowly changing. I don't know where that narrative, where the roots are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it goes back to, um, to slavery and just you know yeah the woman being i guess the only person probably left um either un well you can say unbroken but definitely broken but just left to kind of piece everything back together and hold everything together um it's definitely burdensome to the woman and belittling to the man and i don't know if we just adopted that narrative and all of us just kind of fit into those into that into those roles um of course, I was, you, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that, you know what I'm saying, uh, yeah, I absolutely do think that it comes from uh, slavery because, you know what I'm saying, to me, it's sometimes, you know what I'm saying, there's nothing wrong with being strong. But, you know what I'm saying, we, we had this whole conversation about, like, you know, people, uh, even people that are the strongest, like, you know, you have to check on them. You know, you got to make sure... Well, they're growing and they're healing from the past pain a lot of times without this whole, uh, they'll make it, they'll be all right, they'll be strong. Because I think it comes from slavery because of the fact that we weren't treated like humans in that period of time. Black people were not treated like humans during the period of slavery, you know what I'm right. saying? In, inhumane. And so the expectation that, you know, you can beat people down, you can abuse them, and they go through all this trauma. And then, you know what I'm saying, uh, they, they'll make it. They'll be all right. You know what I'm saying? I think that that mentality 
is something that has been passed down through slavery, you know what I'm saying? And it's, it was very intentional, you know? I, I definitely agree because, you know, I mean, you can't have, you know, you can't have the men who were once leading the village who were, you know, powerful warriors who were um, the chiefs and, you know, obviously they were running the, the villages and they were running their, um, their tribes. Um, you can't have them coming on, you know, U.S. soil as um, chattel slavery and having that same kind of mentality. So you have to break them, obviously. Mm. And then what's left is the woman holding it together. And a lot of times the woman was used to kind of tame the man down. And, and I just think that um, some, of those, some of those attributes, of course, left, you know, seeped over from slavery. We embrace some of them. And I think also being disconnected from what our... Um, what our structures and our systems were. Some things like, you know, as far as a woman being the nurturer and the woman being the, uh, you know, um, the maternal, you know, family coming around the woman when she's having childbirth and the man being left to traditional men things, that is um, somewhat African culture. But, you know, of course, when we come into the Western world, now we're dealing with, um, with you know, the absence of the black father in Africa they weren't you know or in Ghana or um they weren't um absent so they you know they had other positions they were doing you know they were providing for the for the tribe or whatever but when we come here now we have the absence and absence brought on through slavery from um um separating families through the civil rights era um also the disenfranchisement of men feeling like they you know being locked out of certain jobs or being put in jail so they can keep the chain gang going and so now you have the woman having to step up and head the family. Mm -hmm. And that trickled over into civil rights, trickled over into the 90s, which I was going to speak on, which, you know, I, I feel like is the only era I really can vouch for, because mm -hmm. that was the era, you know, when I came into a, a womanhood. And I can, only, I can only really speak on what was going on during that time. And I do think that all of us, when it comes to that, have our hands dirty. I remember in the 90s, I remember women embracing the, um, the strong Black woman narrative and that was because a lot of men were either in jail you know that's around the time the street three strikes laws came out um, um the crack era so you you know you have men you know and women falling victim to um the crack to cocaine um, people going to jail you had some abandonment um so then you have this this era where you have you know a lot of households at least within my community and that's all i can really speak on being um headed by a female and so then there emerges this, this, you know, false sense of confidence. Well, we're strong black women. We can handle it. We can deal with it. You know, the reliance on the system, welfare systems and stuff like that. It was also the, um, the era of the ride or die chick. You know, I mean, that was something we bragged on back in the 90s. It was like, you know, we holding mm -hmm. a man down, whether you're holding them down through prison sentences, whether you're holding them down through um, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. through abuse, through um, any kind of anything that was going on, you know, you wanted to be that female that was going to hold that man down no matter what. And, and that's also um, that was also a response to all the atrocities that had happened to black men, you know, in civil rights and um, and also, um, you know, in slavery, you know, women not mm -hmm. wanting to call the police, not wanting, you know, when you know that your man can get, you know, he can he can go outside and maybe chase somebody's chicken off. And next thing you know, he's got seven years on the chain gang in some mine somewhere. You know what I'm saying? You're not going to call the police because, you know, he pushes you or something. You know what I'm saying? So you wind up kind of stomaching a lot of that stuff and you have pride in being like, okay, I'm going to hold this man down and, and vice versa. Um, 
And then you have um, the other stereotypes like, you know, the Jezebel stereotype, the, you know, the Sarah Bartman and all that, and the, the, you know, the sexualization of our bodies and stuff, even to the point where now we got to be almost ashamed to be able to show our bodies. And that's one of the things I noticed, you know, when I moved here, I noticed like, so white women can walk around and show their bodies or have on like a bikini or have on some shorts and they're, they're still wholesome. But because of the way that our bodies look, we're not able to wear those things. Like I thought wholesome was how you are, not first, not how you dress. Sure. Um, also, um, uh, the tragic mulatto and that trickle down the colorism in our, in our community, um, the concubines and all that kind of stuff. Um, even the big mama, you know, we took pride, all of us as a community, we took pride in big mama. Big mama's gonna cook, big mama's gonna hold the whole family together. Big mama got diabetes, you know, she got gout. Big mama is, you know, she's hunched over. Big mama's probably gonna die probably around 60. Mm-hmm. And then the family's gonna fall apart because we're all relying on big mama. And I just think that those were, those stereotypes were just so so damaging to us. But I, one thing I will say though, is that the next generation that came out after that started breaking through a lot of those stereotypes. You don't hear people, women wanting to be ride or die. You don't hear women wanting to be that strong black female no more. They understand, um, and, I, and things, things were probably a little bit different here in the South, but um, as far as the black man in the home, I know there was an epidemic in California in, in, in the Bay Area where, the, I mean, like hardly anybody I knew like I can remember two people that had fathers in the home, you know what I'm saying? So my, my responses may be based on that reality. I don't know if it's because I moved to the South or if because times have changed a little bit. And I know this is a Bible belt and a lot of people were reared more toward, you know, get married, get a family, raise your children. Um, but I know that nowadays I see black fathers in the home so much more. Uh, we still deal with our same issues of child support and, you know, and not making wise choices when it comes to picking people to rear our children and stuff like that. Um, a lot of it is just youth not knowing, but I'm starting to see that, you know, we're, you know, we're co-parenting. People are, are really, really trying to, to put aside those narratives. Um, some of them just really weren't true. We were really fitting into, into uh, like putting a circle in a square box. We really, that really wasn't us. It was just that we were embracing those things. I think um, like overcompensating for things. Uh, being a strong black female and holding it down because, you know, maybe your mom didn't have a man in the house. You didn't see your father and, you know, none of your girlfriends do. So, you know, and you may unintentionally run off a man that they are trying to help because you got to relearn. You know, mm-hmm. if you, if, 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 if the men and the women are both broken to the point where we're not holding each other in the homes and we got to relearn. If this man has mama issues because his mom abandoned him. And if this woman never seen a male figure, that was positive in her life. Every male figure she sees um, wants to sexually abuse her or her, or she sees her mom making bad choices with men. How are we two gonna come together and create, you know, how are we gonna tear down those walls and create this new narrative? But I, I do think that it's changing though. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. And a lot of these stereotypes, you know, were causing our demise. A lot of them were like, um, um, the aggression, the hardness, a lot of that was based on like, I think it was um, I think it was Dave Chappelle that was talking about walking. He, he was like, "How would you know? How would you feel walking around with um, with a block of gold in your hand, 24/7? And you got to worry about whether somebody's trying to rob it, somebody's trying to steal it. You know, you're trying to cover it up. You don't want nobody to see it." And he um, he drew, drew that parallel, between, you know, between that gold and being a woman and walking around with something that you feel like people want 24/7. 
you know, and even as an adult woman, I have to worry about like, when I go outside and jump rope outside and I have a half shirt on, am I gonna provoke one of my neighbors into wanting to break into my house? You know what I'm saying? So those are just things I think that um, men don't think about. And I actually had an experience recently where I got out the shower and I was, um, I got out the shower and I didn't have any clothes on and it was like five o'clock in the morning and somebody was outside my window peeking in. Ooh. See what I'm saying? So, like, I mean, this was probably like a month ago. So it wasn't in Little Rock. I was in a different city at the time. But anyway, um, so that creates in a woman an aggressive, hard exterior. Mm -hmm. You know, when you constantly feel like you have to protect yourself. Um, as I'm sure, you know, it creates that same thing in men for different reasons. Um, So anyway, I don't know if that answered your question, but pretty much we just, we're, we're killing a lot of those stereotypes, you know. We don't want Big Mama to be obese and die from all these health issues early. We don't want our stress to drive Big Mama into the grave. You know, I think, you know, it's time to lay a lot of those stereotypes to rest. Already, already. Already, okay. So I, I, I like your, uh, your points that you were making right there. And uh, so... I want to ask you this, you know what I'm saying? Also, because I noticed that like even uh, this year, you know what I'm saying? We did see a lot of protests this year and they're still ongoing. And then uh, a lot of times you'll see that like the people that are leading these protests are women, in particular black women. And even in some of the protests that I was at in, in, the, in the demonstrations and direct actions that I was in part of this year, I saw you at a, a, a couple of times, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so you being a woman, black woman, but what role do you see uh, for artists in the social justice movement? Well, yes, I was, I was there. And I, it's notable, I should say, I'm an older black woman now. So uh, <laughs> my role is a little bit different, but um, let's see. Um, I guess, I was thinking about um, Nina Simone. I don't know if you caught her documentary that was on Netflix. Yeah, but, um, okay, one of her famous quotes is um, the role um, of an artist is to reflect the times. So mm -hmm. I think that, uh, I mean, I think as an artist, if you're not doing that, you should really, really recheck what your purpose is for writing. You know, uh, are you a true artist? I also think that, you know, there's a part of me that kind of feels like it's almost impossible not to reflect the times. I mean, even if it was, even if it was trap music, I mean, that's reflective of our times, what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I guess it goes back into the whole argument, art imitating life and life imitating art. Um, I definitely think that as, as an artist, you should, art has always been used um, to inform to let the public know. I, I can think back to like the Black Panthers when they were putting out the newsletters and the cartoons and, um, you know, when hip hop started and, you know, even if it was just graffiti on the wall, um, um, I could think back to, um, uh, what's his name, Basquiat, who, um, who had um, Samo and who was putting images or scribblings on the wall. Well, I shouldn't say scribblings, but, um, he was putting phrases on the wall 
Mm-hmm. And when you drive around Little Rock, you can see phrases or, you know, there's this infamous eye that I always see everywhere. And when you think about it, you know, one of the things that when you protest and when you uh, or when you go to um, the protest or even if you drive by afterwards, one of the first things you see is like Black Lives Matter all across the wall, all over the freeway. So graffiti has always been used um, for that purpose to inform. To It's, it's always been um, graffiti, rap, whether it's um, cartoons, what you know, cartoons meaning like in a newspaper. Um, or whether it's poets or a singer like um, Nina Simone, it's always been the voice of the people that feel like they're unheard. So it's always been voices from the margins. And of course they commercialize it. And then we got, you know, sometimes got to remember what the purpose is, but it's definitely informing the public because a lot of times, especially back in early rap days, you didn't have those vehicles. You know, you weren't on TV like that. You, we, we didn't have our videos on TV. So what do we have to do? We, we're gonna do it out in the street. Um, or we're going to pirate, we're going to jack the uh, airways, we're going to have our voice heard, we're going to inform um, the Panthers putting out those pamphlets, letting everybody know, hey, this is the, uh, we're, we're feeding the kids over here on this day. Um, definitely to empower, and I put in, um, when I think about empowering through the arts, I think of people like um, um, Fred Hampton, his voice, and, or Stokely Carmichael, um, and just, you know, all the mantras that we were given through the arts. Also, um, when you hear something like um, fight the power from, you know, from, uh, from PE or F the police, you know, it just kind of, it, it empowers you. You know, when I, when, you know, recently when I went to the, um, the protest that was out here in Little Rock, you know, you just get hyped up when you, when they start playing Tupac, you know what I'm saying? You just feel like it's a, it's like a war cry. Um, so let's say I got inform, I got empower. Um, definitely critiquing, critiquing what's going on. A lot of times people can't articulate, you know, poets have always been, um, or artists have always been the people that can um, articulate the frustrations and critique what's going on. You know, sometimes people are frustrated and they don't know why they're so frustrated. And you have people that um, are great orators like um, like Dr. Umar, who, you know, whatever people think about him, because, you know, I have my own, own feelings too. I don't subscribe to his ticket like that. But <laughs> one, thing, <laughs> one thing that's powerful about him is his ability to put into words how we all feel. Even like, you know, like single mothers walking into the school and being underrepresented in schools and being treated, you know, he's able to articulate that, why you shouldn't have your kid in um, special education. Um, um, Also, you know, the storytellers or the artists are, um, they're the griots, they're the people that are, um, they're the historians. They're going to put, you know, when you think about everything that you know about the Harlem Renaissance or the civil rights movement, you know, just think about the civil rights movement by itself. When you think about that, you're less likely to think about the dates and times or newspaper articles. You're more likely to think about the songs, right? You think about um, Marvin Gaye being, you know, singing, or you think about Nina Simone singing and what, you know, um, you think about what was going on in that era artistically. And that's what reminds us of the times. And also um, that's what, basically transcribes what's going on. And there was a scene on, um, on the movie, I think it was uh, 400, is that the name of it? When he was like, Sparta, when he came yeah. into the hole. Okay. I ain't never seen it, but I know what you're talking about. Maybe it was 400 or 300, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was 300, I think it was 300, 300. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, the thing that stands out to me about it, I've only, I only watched it one time, it was, and it was a while ago. But what stood out to me about it is, you know, I don't know if you remember when they were like all surrounded and they were getting ready to conquer this army 
instead of killing everybody, they let one person go. And the person that they let go was the poet or the storyteller. And the reason why they let them go is because if I kill this whole army and I dominate and I conquer this army, I need somebody, at least one of them to live to go back and tell the others. So, you know, it just puts me in the mind of an artist. Like we need the artist to be able to tell what's going on. Who's, who, when, um, you know, a decade or a century from now, how are they gonna know about the Black Lives Movement? They're not gonna look up news articles, barely. They're gonna look up at the artwork from there. We look up at, you know, Panther artwork. We look up, um, or, or speeches. We look up, um, um, you know, we think about Langston Hughes poems and they inform us about everything that was going on during that time. I think that's it. Um, that, oh, also just um, also communicating this, you know, um, I guess um, when you think about like slavery and the way that we used to communicate, we used to communicate through song. We would tell, you know, what's the routes to get away through song or quilting or, um, you know, some form of art through dance, you know, that goes back to Africa, you know, with um, tribal dances and stuff. We communicated things to each other secret coded messages and we still do that i mean the way that you know before before um facebook came up or social media for those of us who were alive before social media took over um the way that we found out what was going on in new york was through music i mean we found out you know they listened to um nwa and they found out wow this is what they're doing they gang banging in you know in cali like that or you know or you know we start finding out wow we got a lot of similarities you know we find out what's going on in the south I found out, you know, to be honest, even though I had, I had been here, you know, several times before, but how I really found out like what's going on in the South was when rap music turned to, you know, into Southern rap music. And when um, Master P came out and got about it. And, um, and even before then, right before then, when Bangin' and Little Rock came out, you know, the documentary. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's what's going on out there right now. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I mean, that's like our, that's, that's our news. You know, our art is our news. Yeah. We can't trust the masses. We can't trust yeah. the, I mean, not the masses, but the media, you know, the government. We got to find out what's going on from each other. And that's the way word of mouth. Nah, that's real. That's real. I'm glad you, uh, you, talk, you touched on it too, with like media, because, uh, you know, we definitely, uh, the people have, have taken over. You don't really hear people talking about periodicals like they used to. You don't, uh, you don't hear people like talking about, their newspaper subscriptions and their uh, magazine subscriptions in order to get the news. We get like, it has really shifted with social media and arts to where people are getting informed through social media, through artists. And uh, that is, that has uh, really transformed uh, what we look at now is like our current events and, and what's going on in the world. Well, and let me, let me say this too. We've always look for our own voices because yeah. even like back in the day you remember the green book how you know yeah we had our own little you know hey this is the route you need to take this is where to go this is where not to go we had our own of course you know the chitlin circuit we traveled we had our own um magazines and networks a lot of times those were shut down and mm -hmm. even 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 like you know with the book i brought up earlier home going from uh gia i mean uh yeah Giasi, um even that book has informed me so much more in terms of things that were going on um, pre-slavery in Africa and then, you know, the slave trade. And when I think about what I know about the slave trade, it didn't come from history books. It came from literature. You know what I'm saying? It came from um, either literature or movies. 
it came from art. It didn't come from, you know, because, I mean, you know, we were only probably in a little paragraph in a history book. So I felt like reading, just reading this book, I felt like it was a whole history lesson because now I got the texture of what, you know, what it was like. I got the food, I got the, you know, the music, the sounds, I got the, you know, the feeling of being in a slave ship. You know what I'm saying? A feeling of, um, of the civil rights era. Only, that's only going to come from art. No doubt, no doubt. And it's, it's, it's always interesting to hear people from different parts of the um, United States talk about, you know what I'm saying, uh, their different outlets and how they learn about this and how they learn about that. You know, uh, for Little Rock in particular, like I think a lot of people in the 90s for sure saw that special gang banging in Little Rock, you know what I'm saying? If you didn't see it, you heard about it. And, uh, you know, even the follow-up uh, to a, the, the sequel or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and you talked about Master P, yeah, like people, that was, that was like the South, actually, uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, not the first time in the South, because we think about people like, like Luke, Scarface, and Luke, Luke, yeah. Scarface, and then Outkast, South got something to say at the Source Awards, the same year that the Tupac and, and uh, West Coast and Biggie and Bad Boy, the East Coast situation went down. You, you know what was funny to me? Like, because uh, you mentioned Master P2 with uh, No Limit Records. You know, he was talking about, uh, he talked about uh, in his recent uh, docuseries or whatever about No Limit Records, how New Orleans, and it was so crazy in the Calio projects and stuff. And he was like, man, I need to get out of here to give myself a chance at a better life. And he went to Richmond. And uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I hear people talk about Richmond out in California. That ain't the first place you think is like an escape to get away from like crime and violence and you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's, that ain't like, ooh, let's go to Richmond, man. It's, it's uh, that's where we'll be safe at, you know? So that's where, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an upgrade. But, Richmond was hard back in the day, but every everywhere has its decent places. Oh, yeah. but I'll tell you oh, what, yeah. though, coming from Oakland, there was a couple of places that I went to that I was like, "Ooh, yikes!" Like, like it was worse <laughs> than Oakland, and, and New Orleans was one of them. Uh, well, I, you know, and Detroit, Michigan, those those made me clutch my pearls. I was like, "Ooh, this is I can't but, wait to get back home." Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, and, and not to not to you know not to go to come down on New Orleans because I love New Orleans. It's so beautiful, oh, yeah, it has me so much too. culture. But but it was one of those places where I was like, like okay, I thought I saw it. Uh, you know, I thought I had it hard, but yeah, it was one of those places. So I can I can definitely understand. Plus, sometimes just leaving your environment as a mm -hmm. whole, mm -hmm. you know, because I know you know there are some places here that's 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 pretty rough. But just leaving my environment and coming to Little Rock changed me. Gotcha, gotcha, most definitely. Uh, you know, so we're going to start wrapping things up here. But I, I got to ask you this, man, because you coming from the West Coast and then moving here, uh, you know, people normally call people that go somewhere, make a, a second home somewhere, they call them a transplant. But I figure, like, you know, wherever home is, home is where you're going to be at. So I, mm -hmm. I hope you look at uh, Arkansas like it's, it's like a, it's a home for you now, too. But definitely, definitely. You, you mentioned earlier that, um, um, about the South and the Bible Belt, and, and we know that that's like real, that's real here, man. And um, 
You know, that's, that's just a part of the South. And we talk about a lot of things as far as like women and the organizing that going on in the South and the civil rights movement. A lot of that came up out of the church. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about the West Coast and I think about organizing, I think about the Panthers, you know what I'm saying? I think about the Panthers out there in, uh, in California and in the Midwest. And even when I, I think about the East Coast, too, I still think of uh, black people organizing in a different way. But, uh, you know, the churches, man, they, you know, that was the beginning of uh, organizing for us because it was like a safe haven in the hub. And then you had to think about, like, the church was like one of the few people that had a directory in the community to get in contact with everybody. And so my question to you, like, with somebody that's coming from the West and seeing how the Bible better is in the South in particular, uh, I think the modern-day movement is, is still spiritual, but, you know, you see activists organizing more on social media and in the streets. And my question to you is, do you think there's a dis disconnect in the church basically not healing, but coping with white supremacy, or are these new challenges in this new day and time, uh, are they too intense? Um, I, I don't think that the challenges are too intense. I mean, it's the same old challenges we're dealing with. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but I can just, you know, say what, I, what, what I've just noticed. Um, first of all, when we talk about the church, a lot of times we talk about it as if it's one big organization as opposed to it being a whole bunch of different ones. And um, it's, it's interesting that you point out about the South because, and, and then you, you know, you talk about the Panthers, and I think it's important to to um to acknowledge that a lot of the panthers just like you know most of us our origins our roots are from the south, the south you know yeah. you got um bobby hutton from pine bluff um mm -hmm. i believe and then you got um geronimo pratt from louisiana i mean i could probably you know look at their histories and just see all of them you know trickle down to the west from the south but um the way that the south is right now is similar to the way that Oakland would have been in the 90s where you see a disconnect of black people and and the Christian church. I don't know what the reasons are behind it. I can only um, just point out a couple of things. Um, first of all, in the 50s and 60s, of course, even before then, the church was definitely a part of the movement. It was um, it was our information hub. It was where, you know, we went for unions. You know, that's why the, the church was often targeted. You know, it was bombed. It was, you know, shot at like in um, Elaine. You know what I'm saying? Because in Elaine, they were meeting there to, you know, to start a union to get fair prices to sharecroppers and everything. Um, of course, that's where we went to register to vote. Mm -hmm. um, um, our leaders came from the churches. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them came from the churches. And it's also important to, to acknowledge also that Islam was also and is also still a big part of it. Mm -hmm. So you have more than one one, um, I don't want to call them religions, but you had more than I, one. Um, say, I say school of thoughts. School of thoughts. Okay, that's that's a better phrase. <laughs> you had more than one school of thought where black people went to, and we felt like you know we were all one, and we were all you know we were all um, you know pretty much a part of the same fight. I think that um, somewhere along the way, which happened, like I said, in other places a little bit before now. When I moved here in 2000, 99, 2000, when I moved here then, the church was more a part of it then. I think that there's been a separation with certain organizations and certain people like um, becoming uh, pro-gay, mm -hmm. um, young people feeling, um, they're feeling disconnected from the church. You have uh, move, and the reason why I say pro-gay is because you have movements like Black Lives Matter where, um, 
they're inclusive in terms of um, gay rights. And then you have women's rights, women's organizations. And a lot of times those organizations or those, um, those school of thought or those, um, all those isms are not welcome in the church. So, well, I shouldn't say isms, but all those um, different areas are not welcome in the church. Like a lot of women felt disenfranchised in the church. They didn't feel like their voice in the church mattered. Um, a lot of them were subservient roles or they were, you know, they weren't the pastors. The, um, you know, depending on, like I said, I don't want to generalize because I know all churches aren't the same. Um, so I think that that may have stemmed some of the problem with people feeling disconnected. Young people definitely felt disconnected from it. And um, what I heard a lot of young people saying was that they didn't feel like they were getting um, the assistance that they needed. You know, they felt like a lot of it was just like um, left on the spiritual realm, like just pray about it just turn to God about it and they wanted something more tangible. So that's why um, I think you pointed out that there was more, um, what, how did you put it? Uh, you put that there were more, I guess, you didn't say modern, but you used some word about it being more religious, but more modernly religious as opposed to like old time Kojic or, um, but people just, were. I think I just said spiritual, maybe. Maybe, uh, maybe that was it. But more new age spiritualism, I guess. Um, yeah. And and also, um, there's a lot of there's a big movement of black people going back to African spirituality and feeling like that was um, frowned on by the church. A lot, and I'm saying a lot of these things, even though a lot of these things aren't necessarily my belief, because I do believe, you know, that I can do both. I do believe mm -hmm. I can have African spirituality and also be Christian. I do, you know, but I wasn't, I wasn't born and raised here. And I, that mm -hmm. wasn't embedded in me to the point where I felt like I had to make a choice between African spirituality and I'm looking at places like the Haitian revolution, you know, or times in history where those things were effective, but you're telling me that I can't burn sage or I can't, um, you know, I can't bring in some of those practices or if I'm a gay, um, if I'm a gay person, I'm not welcoming your doors. You know what I'm saying? Or if I'm a woman, I'm not, my voice is not welcome here. I didn't feel those things. So mm -hmm. that's just what I hear other people, you know, mentioning. And, and I'm not saying I've never sat in church and heard some of those, some of those teachings, but um, it was just different churches. You know what I'm saying? Just different churches with different beliefs. The, um, if I found that I didn't have a connect with one, like there was one church I went to that didn't want me to wear pants. Well, you know, you can't wear pants, you can't wear makeup, you can't wear weave or whatever. I mean, I ain't about that life. I'm about the pants life. So, you know, I can understand that if something is totally going against who you are as a person, that you will separate from that eventually. Mm. So especially if, you know, if, you know, the younger generation may feel like, okay, well, that wasn't effective. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I, were, if I was to ask an older person, they would feel like their prayers were effective. They will feel like, you know, I prayed, I prayed over, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And they protected my son. You know, and there's some who feel like, you know, that wasn't working. We got to do it this way. So I, I do think that um, I, I would like to see it connected again, whether it's, you know, I, I would just like to see all of them come together. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that there's, there's power in numbers, you know, and I always, if you notice on my hip hop reader page, I never try to, um, I never try to, I try to mediate those things because 
I don't feel like because you're a Muslim, you can't be on my page or because you're a Christian or because, because I mean, we ain't got the numbers to be dividing ourselves up like that. We need the black church. We need Islam. You know what I'm saying? We need our transgender gay, you know, we, we need everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and I have had to in the, you know, probably the last decade, probably having to check myself from saying or feeling certain ways because we really can't afford to separate ourselves, you know, and to be divisive amongst ourselves. So I, you know, I've just taken on, you know, I've just taken on that challenge of trying to, um, to be inclusive with my thoughts, but also with my actions. Because at the end of the day, you know, if I need somebody to, to escort me and a Muslim, you know, nation, you know, you know, I want to, they want to escort me like they used to do back in the day when, when, um, you know, like when MLK was shot, if you're going to come and escort me to this funeral, am I going to turn you down? Cause you're, you know, cause you're Muslim, you're not Christian. So I just think, you know, hopefully the break that we're seeing will lead us to being one people versus mm-hmm just separating and being like, I don't want to do with them Christians. You know, I'll pretty much go speak anywhere, you know, in terms of, you know, keep us all united. I, and, but that's not to say I understand the concerns, because I do. You know saying? But at the same time, I just think that, if, you know, if we're saying that we want those things and we have to be, you know, embracing of certain leaders, you know, which is why I'll go see somebody like, you know, years ago, went to go see the Umar or, you know, at the same time, I'll go and sit up into a Christian pastor or if Farrakhan comes to town, I'm going to go, I'm going to go hear what he say, because at the end of the day, that universal truth that I want to, you know, want to soak up. So, I don't, some kind of way we got to get uh, back on the right track. I get it. I get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I totally agree with you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, we can do things. Uh, I don't know why it's breaking up right now. Can you hear? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, I just feel like yeah. I definitely uh, feel you on your thoughts as far as like you know how we need to use our uh, differences to our advantage as far as like coming together because we all like you know what I'm saying uh, fighting for a similar cause as far as like social change and being socially aware. And so I think it's important that um, we set aside our differences as far as like our beliefs and uh, just learn to think connect, uh, collectively and unite. You know, uh, I know the NBA, they had um, they got a lot of players playing in this NBA bubble right now. And um, I saw one of the players, one of the back of his jerseys, they let him put phrases on the back of their jerseys like equality, justice, Black Lives Matter. And uh, one of the players, uh, I noticed on the back of his jersey, it said group economics. And I thought that was just a powerful way, uh, phrase put on the back of his jersey because it's just bringing the understanding, like even the athletes know that it's important to like, you know what I'm saying, for us to support our community, support each other. And no matter what our differences is, you know what I'm saying, we got to start building collectively. So exactly. dope, definitely dope. So I'm going I'm to I'm take key to that and uh, definitely use that in my life, my personal life. So the last question, man, this, this uh, segment of the program is something that we all always like to try to end on this note. Uh, we call it unplugging your microwave. Unplug your microwave. The, uh, basically, just that whole, just the, that meaning of that is basically um, 
a lot of times in our society, we we think short term. We think that like it's a uh, we think that our solutions like are right around the corner. We're gonna make it happen after one protest, after one city hall meeting, after one email. You know, we got we got in this we got caught in this microwave society where we expect change to happen quickly, and uh, you know we got to do a better job educating our people on exactly what what steps they need to be taken and start thinking long term. So we say unplug the microwave to tap out of that uh, microwave society and start thinking long term about what what we can do individually and collectively to uh, get towards reaching our uh, the goals and our priorities. So my question for you. Dope conversation today, but I want to ask you, unplug your microwave for a second and just tell me, uh, what do you hope to accomplish as an artist and how do you, you hope to use your platform for black girls and women to help build a pipeline for future creators? Well, uh, first of all, I hope that our story becomes visible. Uh, just like I mentioned earlier with Ralph Ellison being um, like the invisible man, you know, I often feel like the black woman and girl stories in certain certain parts of the story are invisible. And I hope to start um, start a dialogue on, on that narrative and make it, you know, make certain things not so taboo to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, also, being able to talk about it without disclaimer, without being like, well, this is not, not to be offensive to anybody, but just to tell your story unapologetically um, and have it embraced. You know, like we talk about the, you know, main culture, being able to take um, being able to embrace the black, you know, the black story, the black collective. Um, I would hope that the black woman's story is also embraced by our community and by, you know, those outside of our community. And just to be able to show that our, our voice matters, you know, the things that we go through matter and um, that it's not always a dig against somebody to tell your story. You know, I think a lot of times as a woman, when you tell your story, you feel like it's going against your community or against men in the community when it's really just you speaking your truth. And um, um, just, you know, as far as me feeling accomplished, just having something to leave behind, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think about Chadwick Boseman, you know, and I think about how he passed, but, you know, he gave us his magnum opus, you know, he gave us, he, he left it all here. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, not to say I would want to die at 43. He was young, he actually younger than me. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I'm saying at the end of the day, look at all that he accomplished. And that's one thing as a, as a writer and an artist that I hope that I could do is have everything that I have inside me to give to the community, to um, the world, just to be able to put it out and have it there. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's all that I have. You know what I'm saying? No doubt. No. You know, we can look at Chad, we can be like, well done. You did your thing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if 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 we would have died, say, 10 years ago or something, you know, would you feel accomplished? Would you feel like you, you know, you served your purpose? Uh, you know, I'm sad about Chadwick and everything, but at the end of the day, I feel like, I mean, dude, you did your thing. And mm -hmm. I'm not where you are, even though I'm older than him, I'm not where you are. Not, you know, not, not saying I would ever be, I don't know, on, you know, creating a Black Panther, but I'm saying I'm not... I can't look at my art and feel like I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Right. Most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. And I was thinking about that earlier when you, when you were speaking too, uh, just about, um, about being an artist and, and uh, being who you are and being unapologetic and thinking about Chadwick Boseman, because you know what I'm saying? Uh, 
man, people, I mean, I was having conversations with people over the last couple of years and it was just like, man, it's like every time it's a movie, every time it's a role, he was getting, he was, he was getting cast. So, and nobody like really knew what was going on with him and stuff like his real close family. And maybe a few friends, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, but like his work ethic, the whole time he had been having a uh, cancer or whatever. And, uh, I think now we can look back on it now after finding out that he had cancer and just see like what he was trying to do. You know, he, he knew he, he was, uh, had a, a, that his time might've been limited and he wasn't trying to wait on time and waste no time. And so, uh, mm -hmm. just putting forth as much and being as productive as, as possible and putting forth as much effort as he could to, uh, you know saying, show his, his, uh, his artistry and his legacy, man. So that's a big salute. So, look at, look at you, Mark. Who died, you know, in his twenties? Let's say, look at Tupac, who died in his twenties. Look at look how much work he put out in a short mm -hmm. amount of time. So I think I think we all can take from that, you know, that you know, time is limited. We don't know. We need to work like you know, like we're trying to leave our mark here and leave our footprint. No doubt, no doubt. So I hope the uh, the young women. The, uh, the older women, the girls are listening right now, you know what I'm saying, as far as like, you know, uh, just going out there and, and uh, just being adamant about what you want in life as artists and whatever you want to do, just going full steam ahead and then, you know, always trying to leave something behind for the next person to inspire them and mm -hmm. the state goes, you know what I'm saying? Spark uh, that flame. Yeah, exactly. Like one of the uh, one of the things I I heard recently from uh, somebody who uh, just got this position that they had been trying to get to in their life, you know, in this title, and uh, you know they had to move on and leave that that uh that, that old career position to accept this new position that they felt like this was they stepping into their purpose in a bigger way, and they was just like, you know what? But I, I left it behind. But I, I know the folks ain't gonna miss me because I made sure. That the person that's taking over my role, I put them in position to take over that role, and that's the way I wanted. Mm -hmm. to, I didn't want to leave it up to like everybody else to like wonder who could do something like this. I already had people positioned the base of whoever's accepted it. It was all under my guidance, and my and I at least knew them in some type of way. We was networking and we was building so that they one day were groom. I was helping them groom themselves to be able to sit in my spot, and that's the way you need to think about it when you leave it. You know, you want to make sure that you're putting it in the hands of somebody that's going to take care of it and then elevate it to another echelon. You know what I'm saying? You know, and um, I don't want to keep going on and on, but you keep making me think about stuff. And it, it made me think about um, about hip hop and how we come down on trap music. But then if you think about, yeah. you know, the evolution of hip hop, you know, if you think about it, you know, the pioneers did, um, you know, leave a legacy for others to stand on. And as you can see, in terms of um, economics, rap artists are smarter. They're building more, they're building empires. You know, you may not look at it, you know, the music wise, you may not feel like it's evolving, but it's evolving in, the, in, in business practices and the way people are understanding contracts and owning, you know, owning their material. So, you know, when you think about the pioneers who don't even have, you know, I mean, they're still out here trying to do concerts just to have a little pocket change versus mm -hmm. when you look at artists nowadays, they built on, you know, what was left, what was left behind, what, you know. Oh, yeah, they definitely did. They into a whole different, uh, it, it goes beyond music. It, it's all about building brands and being influenced yeah. and, uh, you know what I'm saying? having more than one uh, stream of income with them. 
So they took the production companies. You know, Chadwick oh, yeah. was uh, producing. I ain't know that. I ain't know that. You know what I'm saying? But that's dope. That's the way you're supposed to think. It's like, man, you don't stop it where where the predecessors did. You know, saying so you take it to another level all the time. So yeah. So that's dope. Well, uh, you know what I'm saying? We about, we about wrapped up. Do you got any announcements for the people? Like, uh, you want to go ahead and shout out to social media one more time where you can find your work and if you got anything you want to just add? Okay. Um, well, I can be found on social media under Coffee Davis, C-O-F-F-Y-D-A-V-I-S. That's um, IG and, um, and Facebook. Also, um, you can email me at yahoo.com. It's just coffee days at yahoo.com. Or you can inbox me if you want an autographed copy of the book. I'm on Amazon. You can pick up a copy of Medusa, um, Reflections of an Angry Black Girl, or Medusa Reflections in Poetry, or Ghetto Politics. All those are available on Amazon. And um, I'm on Goodreads. I got a couple other projects under the belt. I can't really speak on one of them right now, but. Um, that's it. I'm out here. <laughs> Already. She said she out here. So go support Coffee Davis. <laughs> I'm going to personally, when I when we get done, I'm going to uh, try to mail my copy of Medusa back because I don't think I got an autograph. You know, so I, I got to double check. I got to look inside to see if I got it. It seems like, it seems like you bought it from me, so I'm sure I, I'm sure I autographed it. I should. You was just getting the money hand over fist at the time. I think you was moving too fast to write me a write me Autograph, but I got to double check. You know, I was into them pages. If I didn't, I'm a mail it back. I did not. Must have you with CDs because I got a bunch of CDs on hand too. Nobody CDs nowhere. You know, you know, it's a new day and age. You just got to upload them online. You know, what I'm saying and put them out there on Spotify, Apple Music, all that type of stuff, so people can hear you. Because I still go back to your SoundCloud page every once in a while to go check out some of the stuff that you have put out there. So. People just want it online. Yeah. It's, it, they ain't yeah. cars no more with the CD player, so people be like, ah, I don't need a CD player. They just want to hook up their phone with the aux cord. So. I'm, 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 I'm the last of a dying breed. I still got a CD player. Come on, Scarface. Already. I still got to check this out. <laughs> oh, are you mad? You don't even want to. Look, I'm going to get you. I could I collect vinyl. I'm gonna show you this right when we get off, man. But uh, oh, me too. You think in case you think it's a game? <laughs> okay, trial conquest anthology. All right, hey. Yeah, I, got plenty. I got. I ain't gonna get all into all that. It's all good. Well, hey, man, we appreciate your coffee for uh, joining us today, and uh, you know what I'm saying we hope people checking out the podcast. Support Coffee Davis, support uh, all the black artists, man. Support uh, the activists in this movement. Hey, I appreciate y'all for listening and tuning in to the Folding Chair, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. Make sure you go to Facebook and like Arkansas Public Policy Panel. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram as well. We will be posting the episodes on there with links to uh, where you can find Coffee Davis material at online. So we appreciate y'all. Peace. Y'all be blessed. All right. Peace, Thank you for listening to the Folding Chair Podcast, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. For more information on the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, find us on Facebook, Arkansas Public Policy Panel, and follow us for more updates on the podcast and the work of the Arkansas Public Policy Panel.